Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like this to Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. It's Thursday evening. It's about nine minutes to eight. It's July the 8th, 1982, and this time, more than any other time, Top of the Pops is doing it right. If you disregard Jonathan King's Entertainment USA, which we most certainly do. But the last ten minutes of this episode of Top of the Pops is going to overlap with the first ten minutes of a World Cup semi-final. Ooh... The boy Michael Hurl has done good so far, but he's going to have to pull out all the stops to prevent a mass switch over at 8 o'clock. Hey up, you pop-crazed youngsters, and welcome to the final part of Chart Music 65. I'm Al Needham, and along with Neil Kulkarni and David Stubbs, let us rejoin the episode in progress. Why wasn't that the German entry to the Eurovision Song Contest, we wonder? That's Trio, this week at number 30, in our top 30. Right, Odyssey, stay at number 3 with Inside Out. Back with the zoo wankers, including the one I hate the most. Some twat with a tash and a bouffant, with what looks like Hulk Hogan's thong around his head. Regrets the fact that Da 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 wasn't the West German entry for Eurovision, while Hulk Hogan thong twat blows a kiss at us. I hate him. I've seen him on previous (laughs) episodes of Chart Music, (laughs) and I've always wanted to mention him, but he's not done anything yet, and now he has. I love the fact you have a most hated Zoom. You've got two, haven't you? Have you got one, Neil? I think it might be him. I think it might be the same guy, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you had a particular dislike for that horrible smug twat dressed up as Dracula in that Halloween episode. I haven't seen him since. (laughs) Up next, Inside Out by Odyssey. Formed in Stamford, Connecticut in 1975 from the ashes of the Lopez sisters, Odyssey consisted of Louise and Lillian Lopez and a rotating cast of male singers before settling on Bill McEachin, who immediately jumped on that disco train and rode it all the way to Chartland. In 1977, they lifted a track from Frankie Valli's latest LP, Native New Yorker, and had a whopping hit with it, getting to number five for two weeks in January of 1978. 
but management problems and an attempt to move away from disco resulted in two years in the wilderness until they roared back in 1980 with Use It Up and Wear It Out, which got to number one over here for two weeks in July of that year. This is the follow-up to It Will Be Alright, which got to number 43 in September of 1981. It's the lead-off cut from their new LP, Happy Together, and was written by Jesse Ray, the Scottish Braveheart of Funk, Mm. who was working with Bernie Worrell in the P-Funk band Space Cadets. Mm. They're apparently backed up by Slave, the Dayton Funk band best known for having Steve Arrington as their lead singer, and it's entered the top 40 at number 18 a fortnight ago, and this week it's jumped four places from number 7 to number 3. This fucking group and this fucking song. Mm. Chaps, Al Simons made mention of certain songs that, while you're hearing them, is the best single of all time. And I've got to say, this is one of mine. And I was shocked to hear it on an episode of Top of the Pops as late as 1982 because I always peg it two years earlier at least. Mm. And the way Odyssey look is kind of (laughs) update as well, especially the chap. Oh, God, He looks like it could be from, yeah, 78, 77 sort of era. Yeah, totally. I was just going to say that. It's party for Oxy. They haven't sort of, um, yeah, drunk the old um, Shalimar Kool-Aid yet, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is their last ever appearance on Top of the Pops, though. Yes, mm. oh. but what a way to go out. Oh, yeah, their last mm. top 40 here. But you think of the run from Native New Yorker to this. It's amazing. But, I mean, for me, it's not actually this record that is my favourite Odyssey. I think it's... Um, I cannot get over looking for a way out. I fucking yeah. love that record. Mm. Yeah. Um, mm. I can't forget that. But, th- yeah, they're, they're so great, Odyssey. Lillian Lopez, yeah, what a fucking voice. And she's also, in mm. this performance, she does this thing she repeatedly does, actually. Um, remember when I was telling you way back when I think probably the first chart music I ever did how scared I was of Kate Bush and her wide yes. eyes Lillian Lopez does that all the time as well um, <laughs> it's quite creepy but um, yeah this is a wonderful record wonderful record mm. like you say Odyssey are clearly not 1982 people mm. the Lopez sisters are 47 and 49 respectively and they're there wearing very ornate dresses mm. uh, in the Lopez sisters. Uh, Almost looks like a sari. Mm. Yes, um, I was going to yeah, say yeah. that. Yeah. So they're wearing that. And uh, Bill McEachin's come as Big Bill Werbenuk, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. In his snooker outfit. And they're, they're doing not much of anything. There's no real... There's a, 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 a kind of a cursory wave at a routine. Mm. But who gives a toss? The exactly. single is exactly. doing all the work. Exactly. It's a glorious it single. Is. And I, I really wouldn't want it any other way than it is. The only slightly disappointing thing was actually old David Jensen's intro, old kid's intro. He just says, um, Odyssey, who built up a large fan base in the UK because they're constantly touring. Mm. That's it. I thought you were going to get a quip or something like that. A really half assed Noel Edmonds type quip or something like that. Or yeah. um, of the sort he's been sort of attempting throughout the show. I just thought it was a strangely flat. It's a very, very boring fact indeed, really. It's not barely a fact, mm. really. Um, that's the only note of disappointment. This is a beautiful, magnificent single. Mm. And the fact that, I mean, Slave, who are fantastic, you know, they're really sort of undersung as Slave. Um, yes. Their involvement is, is great. I just just love- a touch of love is a fucking cheer. Oh, it's a fucking cheer, man. Did that ever get in charge? That's it. We're never going to see that on top of the pops, are no, we? No, we're not. Absolutely Got brilliant. Yeah. Not. Yeah. Watching you, all that kind of stuff. It's brilliant. Yeah. Um, absolutely excellent. I mean, I just love the way that the, the slap bass keeps sort of picking, it's really sort of high and keeps sort of um, mm. popping up through the mix, you know. There's actually something strangely understated in a sense about 
about the whole vocal performance. It's, yeah. it's enigmatic in a sense, mm. but all praise to Jesse Ray. Oh, God, yes. What a character. I mean, like, he lived in America for a while. He was he became a runner in the New York Stock Exchange yeah. just to sort of make his money with that. And that's how he met Roger Trapman and Bernie Worrell. And obviously he made such a strong impression on them. You know, oh, he made, yeah. when he did his own solo stuff in the late 80s, they all sort of dutifully came out to the Highlands, whatever, and, mm. and performed on these videos that he did. And, and Yeah, um, over the sea. Mentioned before, fucking amazing. That's right, yeah. That I mean, should have been I, a hit. Yeah. I mean, Jonathan King should have been sent up to Scotland to fucking yeah, do, totally, yeah. do, do his bit. <laughs> and I just love the fact that, you know, he just didn't hold back. There was so much kind of sort of Scottish, you know, wet, wet, wet type sort of white soul at the moment. I thought, now this mm. is what you want. You want, yeah. you know, absolutely mega funky, but unapologetically Scottish as Jesse yeah. Ray was. Yeah. Scottish people are fucking mad into funk, though, aren't they? Yeah, you absolutely. Met, if, when I was in yeah. London, if I ever met a Scottish person... It would be about a 75% chance that we'd end up talking about Sly and the Family Stone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah. went to that Sly and the Family Stone gig in Bournemouth, fucking hell, about 12 years ago. And I just ran into a, a, a gang of proper meaty Scottish lads from Glasgow. And they were fucking mint. We were gabbling on for ages about funk and what we were into and what we grew up on, all that kind yeah. of stuff. They'd had a hotel room. I was planning on sleeping out on the beach and getting the first train home. He says, nah, come back. Come back to the hotel. We'll get pissed up. It was like, yeah, fucking brilliant. And I lost their phone number. And I've always wanted to thank them. So if they are listening, respect to you, my dears. Yeah, yeah. And of course, this song is rightly revered and beloved and very, very well known. Oh. But I would definitely encourage anybody to seek out anything by Jesse Ray on YouTube or whatever. Yes. And just, you know, in his full kilt and regalia and um, armour and whatnot. And, um, mm. but, you know, it's, as you say, it's an absolutely logical link. And I just thought it was an absolutely brilliant riposte to all that kind of Marty Pellowism and, you know, that type of that was emanating from Scotland at the time, you know. But mm. um, um, it's, it's such, also politically, he's so strange because basically, obviously, as you can imagine, he's a Scottish mm. nationalist, is uh, Jesse Ray. But he wants to take it further. First of all, he wants Scotland to get its independence and then for the sort of Scottish border regions, you know, Berkshire, to declare their independence <laughs> from the rest of Scotland, you know, I think. Blimey. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's on a mission. This record, you kind of don't want it to end. Um, you do need it to end in mm. the context of Top of the Pops, but whenever I listen to it, it's like, I don't know, I know it's not looped in on itself, but it almost is. You don't want it to end because the lyrics, they've got no mm. narrative to them. It's about those first few weeks of love when you're so bound up with someone. It's amazing, this record. Well, mm. it's a bit more than that, Neil. It's about um, being in love with someone who's with someone else Well, yeah, moment. there's that as well. <laughs> but it's, it's yeah. It, yeah, it's just this beautiful, gaseous, glowing kind of beautiful thing. It, it's just full of desire, mm. this record. Yeah. And it's just mm. unrequited desire, but a lovely place to be. You just don't want it to end. Yes. You know? mm. Yeah, the, the bit where it goes it's, it's, in, yeah. side, out, and the bass goes fucking mental. Mm. It's just like, no, can we have this for like half an hour? <laughs> and again, it's another example of Britain adopting and cherishing American songs that can't get played in their own country because disco sucks. Mm. Fuck mm. off. Mm, absolutely and it's as funky as it is soulful yeah. and yes. as soulful as it is funky and that sounds almost trite but there's not an awful lot you can say that about and that perhaps yeah. might be something that is extinct these days it may, it may not be actually possible mm. for whatever reason in time to make a record like this it belongs you know it's obviously it's eternal but it belongs all of its era could it only really be made at a certain yeah. time I'm yeah. coming after Jonathan King telling us that the Americans we should be listening to a juice fucking Newton and John Cougar you know oh, yes no. absolutely yeah <laughs> the standout song of this episode for One me. of them, mm. Thank mm. fuck 
it's still early enough in the episodes that I wouldn't have missed it. Yeah, of course. Mm. Of course. So, Inside Out would spend one more week at number three, its highest position. The follow-up, Magic Touch, stalled at number 41 in September, and they never troubled the top 40 again. Although the band is still going to this day, it's a complete Trigger's Broom situation, as both Lopez sisters died last decade, and McEachin retired a while back. Oh, we'll see you soon, though, Odyssey. You feature in a lot of early 80s episodes of Top of the Pops. Yeah. Yes, their performance is somewhat dated. Their clothes are somewhat dated. But it could have been so much worse. A couple yes. of weeks before this, mm. Zoo danced to this. Yes, they did. Record. And Vocal. oh, my fucking God. Yeah. Scrape my eyes out. <laughs> I think that was the last performance of Zoo as a dance troupe. Yeah. Yeah, they wouldn't let him do it after that because it was so fucking rubbish mm. what they do to this record. Yeah. Uh, they almost take the mm. piss out of it, you know? And yes. that's what really aggravates me about Zoo's performance of this. Mm. Yeah, it's sadder than being dead. I just remember there was a certain time when I realised that astronauts and disco mm. stars were dying of old age. And that sort of somewhat <laughs> depressed me. <sighs> Thanks, David. <laughs> inside out, inside out. who built up a large fan following in the UK because they're constantly touring, and that's number three, Inside Out. Right, it's time to go to the electric scoreboard now and check out the charts. New at number 30, it's Trio and Da Da Da. At number 29, up one for Dollar and Videotech. At 28, Goody Two Shoes from Adam Ant. Heart Stop Beating in Time from Leo Sayer is at 27. At 26, Do I Do, Stevie Wonder. At 25, Soft Cell with Torch. At 24, I Want Candy, Bow Wow Wow. With ABC at 23, The Look of Love. At number 22, up from 28, Leonard Skinner and Freebird. At 21, it's Night Train from Visage. And at number 20, Bananarama. And here they are with Shy Boy. Next to some of the kids and a zoo wanker on another zoo wanker's shoulders just in case we don't see them tells us that Odyssey are big in the UK because they're always touring. Then he whips us into the first third of the charts, settling upon Shy Boy by Bananarama. We've already discussed Bananarama on chart music number 27 when they and the Funboy 3 struggled to be picked out amongst a blizzard of zoo wankers and balloons while recording Really Saying Something, which got to number 5 for two weeks in May of this year. This is the follow-up of sorts to that, and not only is it their first single since the Funboy 3 gave them a leg up into the charts, it's their first non-cover version, written by their new producers Steve Jolly and Tony Swain, the knob twiddlers behind Imagination. Originally called Big Red Motorbike, which the group didn't like at all and demanded a lyric change, it was released just over a fortnight ago. Enter the charts at number 61 last week, and this week it soared 21 places to number 20. And although there's a video, directed by Midjor and Chris Cross of Ultravox, where the Ramas give a spod, played by Terry Sharp, the boyfriend of Sarah Darlene and future lead singer of The Adventures, a makeover, here they are, 
in the studio. Let's get into them chart pictures first, chaps, because as always at this time of Top of the Pops gestation period, they're pretty and sadly professional in the main, aren't they? That, that mm. They are. There's no, 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 I didn't spot a single oddity amongst the chart. No, I've got one or two. Oh, have you? I mean, Trio are wearing the same clothes as they did in the Top of the Pops performance, leading me to believe that the BBC didn't have an actual image of them and hustled them outside for a last-minute photo shoot. Yeah, Yeah, probably. There's that great photo of Soft Cell poncing about with oversized musical notes which pops up quite regularly on top of the pops. It does, and I think it's on the front cover of um, The Art of Dancing, isn't it? Ah, there we go then. Yeah. There's a really 70s-looking washed-out photo of Dollar mm-hmm. uh, when they should have used the picture of them in this week's record mirror when they're all japanese up. Have you seen that <laughs> one? Oh, my gosh, no. I can only imagine. Mm. Therese is uh, all geishered up, and uh, David Van Day's gone full samurai. <laughs> All David Van Day's The Water Margin, <laughs> if you will. All the cultural sensitivity of sort of Japanese boy, basically. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a satisfyingly crappy shot of Ronnie Van Zant bellowing into a microphone with a big hat on for Freebird, because mm. that's been re-released. There's mm. a bit of a grab revival going on. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And a pic of Bananarama looking extremely pissed off at the fact that they've got to hold up some inflatable bananas. Yes. Kind of like predating football terrace culture by a good 10 years or so, but mm. they're still not happy about it, are yeah, they? Yeah, they do. Well, it's under protest, um, you know, but perhaps that's the whole idea. You know, perhaps, it's, perhaps they concede, you know, the idea. And let's, let's hold up some bananas and make out we're pissed off about it. That would be very, very meta, very post So this performance then, um, I mean, the good thing about it is that it looks like three of the better-dressed women in the audience have come on stage to do a turn. Mm. And in this case, that's the bad thing too, because let's get this out from the off to me this is no really saying something well you say it's their their first non-cover and it Mm. it is a cover of come see about me basically it's yes very much a cover the thing is you know as a poptimist i should be into this i should really support Mm. banana rama as a kind of counterpoint to to lad rock and lad pop but it's tremendously difficult holding something like shy boy up as anything other than a record really in which everyone us and banana rama themselves really are being entirely cynically manipulated um mm. that you, you said there that they didn't look like they were happy in the shot of the molding but bananas i mean the key thing for me with banana rama really throughout their career is that never post their work with fun boy three they never look like they're enjoying being pop stars to be honest with mm. you there, there's always yeah. this kind of sense of manipulation sense of stuff that they're uncomfortable with I mean, I realise that mm. this, this record is never going to be a powerhouse Motown-type song. I realise no. that the point of Bananarama is their weakness, in a sense, vocally. Mm. This isn't mm. music for girls to sing along to in their bedroom mirror. This isn't sort of Betty Everett doing the sheep shoots. It's the sound of girls singing along in their bedroom yes. mirror, in a sense. You know, there's, there's no harmonies yeah. in Bananarama's music. They all sing the same yeah. note. And that kind of amateurism can be really endearing. But mm. the trouble is what I find here, what's sad about this... It, <sighs> It's obviously a tremendously exciting period for the girls, but the, the, I think here be the seeds of problems that they face later on. You do have to wonder yeah. how much autonomy they're exerting over their appearance. And, you know, it, this single, the B-side, Don't Call Us, is better because it's theirs. It's them, yeah. their own song. 
Yeah. Um, there's an interview with, oddly enough, another sort of all-female band, but obviously completely different, The Raincoats in 1982 mm. that I've read, where Vicky from The Raincoats, she talks about girls being brought into ornament groups and she's talking about the human league now yeah. by then i think the girls in the league have totally proved themselves but banana rama mm. certainly become in this period a target for that kind of idea of manipulation really thanks to records like this because it's a weak sounding record yeah. uh, they sound kind of bored which can sometimes be a good thing but they feel and they look on this appearance they feel a bit pushed around, a bit pushed mm. into this. And I know that's the bargain that they're accepting. Do this, yeah. get hits, don't feel particularly happy about it. But it always made Banana Rama for me a little bit uncomfortable in a sense um, to mm. really get into, you know? Mm. Yeah, Neil, because when we covered Banana Rama, when they did really saying something in a previous Top of the Pops, we were all for them. Yeah, yeah. You know, they came off as the, the three older girls sitting on a wall that if, you know, they nodded at you and acknowledged your existence, that was a really big deal. And there was a dubbiness to really saying something that lifted yeah. their take on a Motown song. Yeah, yeah. But that's gone now, and it leaves their singing abilities exposed. Yeah. So while you could appreciate their take on a Velvet single, with this original song, you're left wondering what the Velvet and the Motown house band could have done with it. And uh, well, yeah. a bit more than this, I'm afraid to say. Well, the thing is, Banana Rama, they're punks, and they're post-punk girls, you know? Mm. And, and that's why they work with Fun Boy 3 suited it. Now they are being pushed into this new kind of type of pop for the yeah. 80s and and it ill befits them i think a little bit i mean don't of course it doesn't because they end up having a fair few hits mm. but at no point i, I don't think they're enjoying I, I think already then we're, we're obviously years before the the pizza incident that blows the band apart but mm. um you know the, i sense already they're not enjoying this no it's interesting neil that you say that because i think in a sense that suspicion is kind of vindicated by um, when they um, hooked up with um, Stock Aiken and Waterman. Mm, yeah. However, mm. I'm a lot more positive about this single than you two chaps, and I was at the time. Um, I, I really liked it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think before we just, why did they seem to get so much press? And I mean, obviously, you know, there's mm. the, the fancy ability factor, but I think they used to work as, mm. as sort of a press officers. used to come up to um, music press officers before my time um, and sort of hand out vinyl, you know, to journos and editors and probably, you know, build rapport um, that way. So there was probably a sense among journalists that there were some of us as it were yeah similar yeah. thing with emma out of lush um i remember that when she did that before. right but, um i do like this i and i think there is a sort of kinship with um human league and what i was talking about earlier on mm. in a sense there's a certain effortlessness not in the usain bolt sense of qualifying for the 100 meters final you know in the semis looking like he's strolling through that not that but a sort of lack of i don't know like robusting strenuousness that you yeah. get from the mm. 1990s onwards that era in pop when women in pop become re-objectified Frankly, mm. you know, it's it's there's a certain withering disdain about them. There's a little half smile that um, Karen gives to the camera um, on the line every minute we're together, and it reminds me of a similar smile that um, Joanne out of Human League does yeah. in the video to keep feeling fascination. Um, you know, mm. it's a sort of you know, it's it's, it's a half smile. It's, it's very sarcastic. You know, it's got. You know, they're out of sync uh, when they're dancing, and that's great. I mean, whack a handbag down there on the stage, and that'd be about the size of it. And if those geezers from Only Fools and Horses, like Mickey Pierce and his mate, come sidling <laughs> up to they'll just mouth, piss off, yeah. and, without missing a beat. You know, there's that. that. You know, I, I like all of that. Mm. I like them. I mean, I, I like, yeah. I always like Sarah or Sarah. Her iciness, she never cracked mm. a smile, as mm. far as I was aware, throughout the 80s. So, yeah, I do like them. I, I, I found the song a little bit weak. Um, but yeah. perhaps I'm reading in 
later Bananarama problems into what they're going through at this point. Maybe they're completely happy doing this. And they've got a big hit all by themselves without having to, you know, um, have some male band introduce them. So it is mm. a successful moment for them. Yes. But I just never got the feeling with Bananarama they enjoyed success much. No, well, they're shooting each other looks as they're performing and cocking mm. a leg and lifting a knee and all that kind yeah, of stuff yeah. as if to say what the fuck are we doing here <laughs> you know we've been through this week's enemy where they were mm. interviewed on music laden and i've seen that performance and it's fucking brilliant simply because the fun boy three are on there as well the audience are a typical european pop audience like mm-hmm. bored shitless not reacting to anything mm. and Terry Hall was exactly the same performing on the stage. So you get this feedback of boredom between (laughs) him and, and the audience. It's fucking great. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is okay, and it's kind of mandatory. When I was a kid at school, one of the worst things you could do was have a cheapy i be over-enthusiastic about something. Yes. You know, hey, oh, he's having a cheapy there, isn't he? You, know, be, you, know, you really had to curb your enthusiasm. And I think that was kind of mandatory at this era of punk. You know, it's, 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 um, I mean, if one thing slightly lets them down, it's what they're wearing. Oh, God, yes. It is distinctly zoo wankerish. But in every other respect, they are the antithesis of zoo wankerdom. Mm. I mean, they're all mainly in white with... Um, mm sort yeah. of colourful bits and bobs here and there. You know, they're, yeah. they're wearing banana... Well, one or two of them are wearing banana armor vests, obviously. Mm. Unfortunately, in Karen and Siobhan's case, uh, their outfit involves baggy shorts that just look like mm. massive nappies. Yeah, yeah. So they yeah. end up looking like Pamela Stevenson pretending mm. to be Claire Grogan on Not the Nine O'Clock News. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, mm. there is a bit of that. And there. yeah, uh, by this point, I'm starting to wonder what Jimmy Greaves is saying about Germans on the other side. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bananarama is one of those bands where you do have to take their singles on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. And this one, no, it's not doing anything for me. Do, do it for me. I mean, uh, what normally happens with bands is that they start exerting more control as time goes on. I think it's the opposite with Bananarama. And by the time they're working with Static and Walkman, they really feel pushed around yes. and they're not enjoying mm. it at all no at least here we're getting a sense of joy there is a really powerful sense amongst them and in between each other the, the looks that they're shooting at each other are exactly what you said out is mm. they can't believe they're on top of the pops doing no. this you know and, and that is always wonderful to see and yes. i celebrate the slight amateurism i celebrate the fact that musically they're not harmonizing they're just all singing it like girls would yes um, who were teenage girls who were singing along to this in the mirror much like their fans would end up being but at the same time, do I want to hear it again? Not sure. No. Not sure if I want to hear it again. No. Um, but a good presence in pop, and certainly useful for the music press in as much as putting Banana Rama on the cover in 1982 makes mm. a statement of a sort, definitely, yeah. about what mm. kind of music you, you think the future should look like. So the following week, Shy Boy soared 11 places to number nine, and a week later it got to number four, its highest position. But already the group were dissatisfied with Swain and Jolly, claiming that they wouldn't let them record their own songs and wanted them to be an 80s update of the 60s girl group. And the partnership was immediately dissolved. Linking up with Barry Blue, they put out the self-penned Cheers then, which only got to number 45 in December and was slagged off in smash hits for sounding a bit like the coffee tastes nicer with coffee mate advert jingle. (laughs) So they reunited with Swain and Jolly and roared back to number five in March of 1983 with a cover of Na Na Hey Hey Kiss Him Goodbye with a video featuring them roaring off into the 
the night on three big red motorbikes. Mm. And Shy Boy had an infamous afterlife in February of 1983 when Channel 4 broadcast the first episode of Mini Pops, a show produced by Mike Mansfield featuring extremely young kids dressing up and karaokeing the hits of the day, featuring three frizzy-haired tots singing, He gives me loving like nobody else, I like the way he turns me on. <laughs> Which led to an outraged letter to Channel 4's right to reply which read mini pops should be called mini whores <laughs> are you people out of your mind oh my God. fucking hell mini pops yeah. is it the children's fault yes it's the children's oh, fault oh did you ever see that though no. I did and, and even as a kid mm. Yeah. Even as a kid, you felt like a paedophile. It's vile. I mean, yeah, yeah as a kid, it really is. immediately spot it was totally dodgy and just should not have happened, mm. let alone on Channel 4, you know. I, I mean, know. Very, very shocking that that even ever existed. And yeah. those three girls doing that song, it, it's deeply unpleasant, not only because of what they're wearing, but they're made up as well, heavily made up as I Oh, total, man. Yeah. The Homer Simpson makeup gun. Yeah. <laughs> Fully deployed. Well, exactly. And coupled with those lyrics, God, it's horrific. I don't think Mike Mansfield realised how um, sexual uh, lyrics were getting mm. by 1983. <laughs> I'd love to do a bonus episode of Chart Music where we do that, but it's just... <laughs> you could not sit through a whole fucking episode yeah, yeah, yeah. of that. I mean, it is on YouTube, everyone. Um, bits of it. At your own risk. <laughs> Mini Pops is just immensely bizarre because mm. it's when one tries to identify who would watch that. Yeah. Um, you cannot answer that question without, yeah, a host of ne'er-do-wells and characters. Yeah, it's just appalling. Who the fuck would watch that? I think it was supposed to be something for the oldens mm. and something for the kids, but the kids would fucking hate it. Oh, God, yeah. Simply because, oh, that kid, they, they're famous and I'm not. Fuck them. <laughs> I mean, kids singing pop songs is one of the greatest things in life ever. I've got a video of my niece when she was six singing I Love Rock and Roll while I'm playing it on Guitar Hero. And it's the most brilliant thing ever. But that's because she's so fucking amateurish and and thinks it's called Put Another Dime in the Dew Drop, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whereas all the kids on mini-pops, they're all like stage school... Pushy yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's all about, isn't it? Yeah. You'd have Jimmy Savile wanking in his caravan, you know. But, <laughs> yeah. Oh, please, uh, yeah. David. Yeah. <laughs> Neil, before we go, explain the pizza incident. Oh, the pizza incident was one of the major things that broke up Bananarama, or at least that led to right. Siobhan leaving. Right. Uh, it was down to, they all shared a flat, obviously. A lot of, I mean, mm. if you're going to share a flat with people, that is especially people that you're in a band with that you then have to sort of tour with and do everything with. It's a recipe for disaster. I think the pizza incident was the one that shoved them over the edge in as much as there was a slice of pizza on the floor that had attracted cockroaches. And um, yeah, it caused a massive argument because I think it was Siobhan that left this slice of pizza on the floor. Boom, Siobhan leads the band. Yeah over that pizza slice and that cockroach, which, to be honest with you, is better than most of the reasons that bands split up. It's yes. uh, a more legitimate reason, I would argue, than musical differences. Yes. <laughs> Collectively, Bananarama, and that's Shy Boy. Right, that's number 20. Let's go zooming back up the charts. At 19, Roxy Music with Avalon. Up 3 to 18, it's Murphy's Law from Cherie. Las Palabras de Amor from Queen is at 17. 
At 16, Hungry Like the Wolf, Duran Duran. ACDCs for those about to rock is at 15. At 14, Wonderful Thing from Kid Creole and the Coconuts. At 13, up for 20 bucks, Fizz, and now those days are gone. At 12, it's Ico Ico from Natasha. At number 11, The Beatles Movie Medley. Now we're going to put our engines into reverse thrust, go back to number 13, and catch up with Bucks Fizz with Now Those Days Are Gone. of another failed attempt to integrate the zoo wankers and the normal people. Kid handles a second part of the top 30 before rewinding and coming forward with Now Those Days Are Gone by Bucks Fizz. We seem to have accidentally become the world's leading podcast authority on Bucks Fizz and this, (laughs) their sixth single, is the follow-up to My Camera Never Lies, which became their third number one single in April, ending the foul reign of seven tears by the Gumbay Dance Band (laughs) and giving way after a week to Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. It's the third cut from their second LP, Are You Ready?, which came out at the end of April, was given a 10 out of 10 review in Smash Hits, and got to number 10 in the album charts. And it entered the top 40 three weeks ago at number 37, then soared 17 places to number 20, and this week it's jumped seven places to number 13. So here's the video which was partly shot in Hyde Park and features Mike Nolan as lead singer for the first time on a Bucks Fist mm. single. Uh-huh. Well, chaps, this video starts at the exact same moment that the World Cup semi-final does, and I'm afraid to say you can practically hear the ricochet <laughs> of the ITV1 buttons clicking right across the country. Oh, no, no doubt, like a shot. Yeah. Shameful. <laughs> I mean, was this deliberate scheduling by Hull? I mean, we've said he's front-loaded all the good stuff, mm. and this is definitely the arse end of the episode, as we're, as we're going to find out. Yeah, mm. without a doubt. I mean, most of us will have seen this video well before this uh, appearance of it on Top of the Pops, so we definitely mm. don't need to see it again. Um, nothing miraculous is going to happen in this video that hasn't happened in this video before. And, of course, the video mm. misses the key moment of the filming of the video. Yeah, you know, the, the swan attack. Yes. On <laughs> Is it Bobby or Mike who gets attacked by swans? It's Bobby. It's Bobby, and I believe he was mildly injured in this. Yeah, um, he had to be dragged away by the camera crew. Oh, man. Because we all know what swans can break. <laughs> they can. The Frank Baird of the animal world, that is. <laughs> Size Never of trust. a dinner plate. Well, quite. Never trust mute creatures, swans, no. rabbits. Just don't trust them. If Top of the Pops has said, stay to the end, because we're going to see that swan attack for the first <laughs> time. We're going to recreate it in the studio. Oh, yeah. Bobby G is going to be in a cage fighting with loads of swans. Don't turn over to the World Cup. You don't want to miss it. Well, I mean, we would have stayed without a doubt, of course. Before we get into all this Bucks Fizz goodness, let's rewind a bit and go through them chart picks because, you know, there's one or two interesting ones. Roxy Music. Yeah. Old Brian Ferry looks like the manager of a nightclub who's come out to have a diplomatic word with a difficult punter. (laughs) Exactly. Like a couple of his bouncers, doesn't he? No trainers, tracksuits or baseball caps in Brian Ferry's club, I'm afraid. (laughs) Brian Johnson looks like an angry dad trying to tell Angus Young that he's a big lad 
blood now and shouldn't be on his shoulders anymore. <laughs> uh, Books Fizz themselves are, a, are basically a four-torsoed Blake Seven villain, aren't they? <laughs> Natasha with Ico Ico, I believe, standing in front of some space invaders, which is incredibly passe by the summer of 1982, don't you think? It's all Donkey Kong round here now, isn't it? It's all Donkey Kong and Defender. Yes. You know, definitely. And they've just slapped up the cover of Let It Be for the Beatles movie medley, so, because, you know, who gives a fuck? It's only the Beatles, after all. (laughs) So, yes, chaps, chart music, you know, it's been a voyage of discovery for all of us. Mm -hmm. And two things I've learned is that Buck's Fizz seem to be on top of the pops all the fucking time I'm in the first half of the 80s. And more importantly, and more frighteningly, I've come to realise that, you know what, books for us are actually all right, you know. I mean, we've not done My Camera Never Lies yet, but that is one of the maddest number one singles of the decade. It, it just goes all over the shop, and it's like, oh, fucking hell, this is all right, actually. Well, it's, you know, it is telling, like you said, the album that this is from, it gets 10 out of 10 in Smash yes. and, and the review, I've read it, is extremely positive about the songwriting and everything else. No. In 81, I needed Books Fizz for a bit of national pride, you yeah. know. Um, but by 82, yeah. I, I still needed them. Even though I was seeing them as shit already, or, or mm. starting to see them as a little shit, I, you, you kind of needed Books Fizz to be the centre of pop. Yes. To make your own ordinance kind of away from that centre more plain. You, need, you mm. do need a figurehead of the mainstream. Yeah. To make your musical choices a little bit more interesting. And Books Fizz are definitely sort of stepping into that um, come 82 with videos like this. Um, mm. And they're total real. I mean, let's be honest. They're inheritance of the ABBA mantle, if you like. Yes. I mean, I think they've gone beyond Brotherhood of Man here. Oh, God, yes. Are, uh, and they are so, not as big as ABBA in terms of how many years of success they've had. But they're doing, I mean, they're doing very ABBA-like songs, as this mm. one is as well. Yes. I mean, 1982 is Bucks Fizz's imperial phase, isn't it? They've already got two number ones under the belt, and it's mm. still only July. And it's only them and the Jam who managed two number one singles in 1982, let's not forget. But the thing about them was they just couldn't or didn't want to break out of their family-friendly end-of-the-pier crackerjack ghetto. Well, perhaps at some certain level, certainly. I mean, it feels like they are definitely trying to shake off the shaking Abba thing, obviously, by this stage. Shabba. It's, it's, it's Shabba. <laughs> Shabba. Yeah. You know, and this is very ambitious, and um, it was actually nominated for um, an Ivan Novello Award. Yes. I mean, you know, and those dresses are definitely staying on. There's no doubt yes. about it. Yes. They're serious now. Perhaps they feel that this is the moment at which they kind of ascend way, way, like in, in the balloon or beyond um, Brotherhood of Man, certainly, mm. um, indeed. And, um, you know, they just... They, they on a pantheon, I don't know, Jacques Brel, Tim Rice, Bacharachs, <laughs> you know, the sort of you know, sort of realm of like mature songwriting and craftsmanship. Yeah. Mm. Little do they know that right down at number 29 of the charts, there's an interloper in waiting, like Corporal Hitler in 1918, who's going to yeah. fuck them right up a few years down the line. But uh, <laughs> the great Bob Stanley described this as home county's potting shed balladry of the highest order. Yes. They were ruthless at this time, Bucks Fez. Mm. I mean, this is an obvious play for the Radio 2 audience, isn't it? And mm. yeah. that's Radio 2 in the old money. Mm. I mean, I can imagine Cliff Richard absolutely fucking fuming that he wasn't offered this <laughs> while he's pouring another bucket of child blood on his vineyard. <laughs> well, quite. I mean, look, Bucks Fez, they could easily have taken... Um, sort of uh, wall space in the old people's home that I was living in, you know, um, next mm. to, next to Torvaldine and that. I mean, they're ruthless at this time. Yeah. Three number one singles, and they're each selling yeah. half a million. Only the Human League beat that in this period. Oddly enough, That's by the amazing, way, isn't yeah, it? it is. And uh, uh, oddly enough, Books Fizz are offered this year 
in fact, a 50-minute TV special on Easter Monday, which ends up falling through. It never happens. Oh. But um, Bobby has said that um, their guests were going to be the Human League. And, I mean, who Fuck. knows where that might have ended up. Oh, man. <laughs> Especially seeing mm. as the, you know, the Books of His Live show at the time included a medley of, of my kind of life, hot stuff, do you think I'm sexy, and rocking all mm. over the world. <laughs> so where Good human Lord. league would have fitted into that? <laughs> who the fuck knows? But, Talking yeah. about their tour, it's another example of them kind of like downplaying themselves a little bit. You know, surely, band with three number ones, you can command some pretty big venues. Yeah. Their tour, which starts next month, takes him seaside resorts and mm. mansfield leisure center is down there yeah. on, on one of their dates and their support act is bob carroll g's and spit the dog <laughs> <laughs> but that is them isn't mm. it they were it uncomfortably is. in between the two but i mean you know these are venues that dollar wouldn't play mm. books fish should probably be playing the sort of venues that dollar are playing if not bigger i mean they're enormous at yeah this point. why isn't paul morley banging on about books fizz? that's a really good question i think he might have done you know actually I think he might have done, not mm. not to the same extent as Banana Rama, who he did bang on a great deal about, and Dollar, certainly, of course, yeah. Mm. I think Eurovision is always a big thing to have to live down, really, and you don't necessarily yes. see. Yeah. But they've done it. Mm. They're, they're a standalone group now, aren't they? Very much so. Making songs that I think the two words that most apply to them are expertly crafted. Mm. That, and that's what this is, you know? I mean, even though, for me, it's gagging for a kind of ABBA-like pulse behind it, um, mm. It, it works. It works as a piece of nostalgia for the people that, you know, might take it that way. But it also yeah. works as just a nice bit of harmonised pop. The only trouble is, it's a cappella for a long bit. Mm. And mm. that always has that little bit of a cappella smuggery. It kind of reminds me quite a lot, this, of the New Seekers anthem from 1976. It's kind of similar. But, mm. um, I mean, the the video in itself, my, much much like all books for his videos, they they'd started becoming events of a, of a sort. They're doing something for the olders in this video which takes us all the way back to the 40s don't you know mm. bobby g in his raf togs is essentially taking time out from giving the luftwaffe biff in by <laughs> slapping it about with both rita crudgington who looks so fucking 40s looks like she's just walked off the set of shine on harvey moon man she was born too late that woman mm. Mm. <laughs> and jay aston who's essentially playing jane in the old daily mirror cartoon <laughs> yeah and in the meantime mike nolan's in an old school radio studio with one of them proper microphones in a dinner jacket ruining the 40s effect by keeping his lady die hairstyle yes, yeah, on yes the only thing that's missing from this is david van day in a stuka with an iron cross dangling <laughs> from his throat yeah. Uh, to be fair, both the boys in Booksfizz are letting the side down a bit, I think. Mm. The two girls, they look convincingly wartime. Yes. But if you had hair like Bobby or Mike in the 1940s... You, you, <laughs> Seven days jankers. Yes. You'd, have, you'd have been shot as a fifth columnist or yes. something. Yes. So, yeah. you know, and also, how have they got bread to feed all these geese in the park? Uh, you know, don't they know there's a fucking war on? Do you know it's bread, though? <laughs> it might be powdered egg or something it might be but you know they're using up one of their mm. ration coupons yeah um, traitors you're right they only semi-commit to it really don't mm. they yeah. funny you talk about like taking us back to the 40s that of course is today it wouldn't have taken us back to the 80s yeah. which um, I think just goes to show that certainly in pop time you know there are, there are decades and mm. there are decades you know because mm. the 1980s are much closer to the 2020s than the 
1940s were to the 1980s. Well, exactly, David, because at the very end of the video, we see Jim Baker sat on a bench and then they transform into what I assume is an elderly version of them 40 years later, yeah. mm-hmm. which is pretty much what they would be now. But the 68-year-old Cheryl Baker and Bobby Gubby certainly don't look like that today. Fucking mm. hell. Mm. <laughs> Oddly enough, I, I, I mean, I, I, I remember lying to my mate and saying that the old couple at the end were Bucks Fizz made up, right. that they were Cheryl and Bobby made up. He believed it. I know it might seem that I was oh. a lying little cunt back then, and I just t- t- spent my whole time conning the credulous. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I wasn't the only person to, you know, have a second look at that video sometimes. I think, mm. oh, that could be them, you know? We need to go back to that old people looking like actual old people. Yeah, right. Mm. This is a really, really competent song that is going to mop yes. up a big part of the pop market. But... Mm. It's appearance at this point, yeah, I would absolutely be fucking killing myself to turn over to the footy by now. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, you mentioned a pulse, you know, anything that didn't have a pulse to me, it was was just dead to me, basically, at this point. I mean, we're two months away from the first anniversary of Bucks Fizz winning Eurovision, which was made quite a big deal of by the band and the media, Mm -hmm. which is mental because it's only a year... But the fact that everyone seems to be commemorating it sort of signifies that they have moved on. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, oh, yeah, do you remember we did this? Mm. Every single after making your mind up was almost like a gradual step away from that. Oh, yeah, look, the fact that we are even remembering Books Fizz a year after their Eurovision appearance is a miraculous achievement in itself. Yes. So mm. yeah. the fact that they're having huge hit albums, huge hit tours and all the rest of it. And, and I do recommend people seek out the 10 out of 10 Smash Hits review. Mm. This was not a band that could easily be castigated as Eurovision cheese. They were taken seriously as a pop band. Mm. So the following week, now those days are gone, nipped up five places to number eight, its highest position. The follow-up saw them take another swerve and transform into fuck's biz when they took <laughs> If You Can't Stand The Heat to number 10 in January of 1983. Oh, yeah. And 24 years later, Now Those Days Are Gone became the only official Books Fizz release to contain obscene language when the demo, recorded by co-songwriter Andy Hill, was put out on their Lost Masters 2, the final cut anthology of unreleased songs and off cuts yeah he EFs and Jeff's a bit at the end it's disgusting disgraceful when we were going wrong those days many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
is there, of course. Honestly, I'm not really this short. It's just that they're standing on a ledge here about me. Uh, let's go back on the chart. At number 10, work that body, Diana Ross. Mid-Jurors at number 9, last week 11, no regrets. At number 8, up 5 for the jam, just who is the 5 o'clock hero? At 7, I've never been to me from Charlene. Shalimar with a night to remember is at number 6. Still at 5, Imagination with music and lights. Irene Cara's fame, the highest new entry at number 4. At 3, Inside Out from Odyssey. This week's number 2 from the Steve Miller Band is Abracadabra. And incredibly, at number one, once again, it's the wonderful Captain Sensible. And here he is with Dolly Mixture performing Happy Talk. Kid, back amongst the zoo wankers, breaks down the top ten before alighting on this week's number one. Happy Talk by Captain Sensible. Born in Balham in 1954, Raymond Burns began his career as a member of the proto-punk band Johnny Moped in the mid-70s, before being invited by Malcolm McLaren to join a new group called Masters of the Backside, which featured Dave Vanian, Rat Scabies and Chrissy Hind in 1976. The band fell apart after one gig, but the non-female members decided to stick together and form a new group, The Damned, who immediately signed to Stiff Records. In August of 1976, while a coach party of bands, including Eddie and the Hot Rods and the Pink Fairies, were waiting to depart for the first European punk festival at Mount de Marsan in France, Burns got his name when he turned up pissed out of his skull in a shirt festooned with epaulets and lurched up and down the aisles, pretending to be an airline pilot, leading someone to exclaim, Oh, it's fucking Captain Sensible, and the name stuck. Although the Damned are credited with releasing the first ever punk single, New Rose, in October of 1976, and the first punk LP, Damned, 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 in February of 1977, they split up in early 1978, and Sensible was invited by the band's former road manager to front a Dutch band called The Softies to record a cover of Jet Boy, Jet Girl, an Elton Matello single which utilised a backing track put together by the godlike Luda Prick of Two Man Sound, <laughs> which he later put out himself under the name Plastic Bertrand, called Sa Plan Pour Moi. Due to the lyrical content, about a 15-year-old boy in a gay relationship with an older man who he wants to kill because he's now got a girlfriend, it was strangely never released in the UK. <laughs> In the spring of 1979, the dam reformed and finally broke into the charts when Love Song got to number 20 in May and Smash It Up got to number 35 in October, but diminishing returns started to set in. By 1981, when Sensible noted that loads of people at Damned Gigs had crass logos stenciled on their leather jackets, he linked up with Penny Rambo and spent a week with him at Dial House, Crass's anarcho-pacifist open house, and together they worked on his first solo release, the This Is Your Captain Speaking EP, which was released on Crass Records with a cover of Sensible's face on the body of his pet rabbit in November of 1981. It got to number three in the independent chart. 
Earlier this year, while the Damned was still active, he landed a solo deal with A&M and was linked up with the producer-musician Tony Mansfield, a former member of the Nick Straker band who had just split up New Music, the band he had fronted since 1977. They immediately commenced work on an LP mainly consisting of sensible songs that the Damned had rejected for being too melodic, but discovered they were one song short for the album. When Mansfield told him to pick out a cover version to make up the shortfall, Sensible considered Waterloo Sunset or See Emily Play, but knocked them back when he realised that he couldn't improve on them. So, on the encouragement of Mansfield, he rummaged through the record collection of his parents, who he was still living with at the time, and pulled out their copy of the soundtrack to South Pacific. The 1949 musical written by Rodgers and Hammerstein and zeroed in on the song where Juanita Hall gives her daughter and an American Marine that she's knocking off some relationship counselling. When A&M discovered that another artist was ready in a cover of Happy Talk for release, they took a chance and rushed it out as a single three weeks ago. And after extensive play on Radio 1, it entered the chart at number 33, which led to a performance on Top of the Pops with Mansfield, Rod Bowkett, a keyboard player and arranger who had worked with Cliff Richards, Stackridge, Fern Kinner, Marty Kane and Bernard Cribbins on the single Make Someone Happy Every Day, which was recorded by Buzzbear, you know, the massive yellow-orange bird mm. who used to nag at you for not ringing up your mam, mm. and Dolly Mixture, an all-woman post-punk trio who were signed to Paul Weller's Respond Records, were once supported by U2, and had just come off the Bad Manners Gosh It's Tour. To the amazement of everyone involved, the following week, Happy Talks soared <laughs> 32 places to number one, becoming the first single ever to jump to number one from a position outside the top 30 and breaking a record, which was set by the Beatles in 1968, when Hey Jude jumped from number 27 to number one. I think that's going to be the biggest sword I'll ever do yeah. on chart music. Well, well, I mean, it's the biggest soaring. That record, that lasts for many, many years, that record. This is its second week at number one, and he and Dolly Mixture are back in the studio for the third time. Well, hmm, where to begin with this? I'll start with you, David. You obviously knew all about Captain Sensible yeah. being at that age in those trousers. Yep, yeah, and yeah, I was definitely. just about aware that he was in The Damned and a punk, but what did the young Neil called Carney know of him? Um, me? <laughs> I wasn't aware of The Damned. Um, no. Even though I think they might have been on top of the pops, I wasn't aware that he was a member of the Damned at all. So mm. what I knew about him was, yeah, this record and these appearances... Yeah. And did I emerge from that with much sense about who the fuck he was? No, because no. this performance and this record, to a certain extent, they're kind of a joke I wasn't getting, to be honest with you, mm. at that age. Um, although, you know, eventually I would come to love certain solo Captain Sensible things, like what, yes. um, what worked, because it's pretty much a pop version of Oggy, Oggy, Oggy. Yes. But, um, you know, <laughs> th- this this just seemed odd, this long-awaited return to number one for Rogers and Hammerstein. Mm. Um, it was just strange. And, and the performances didn't help much, to be honest with you. Um, no. I wasn't that familiar with what drunk people look like. Mm-hmm. 
now, of course, I can look at this and think he's pissed out of his face and he was probably, yeah. well, in fact, as later reading of, uh, of, of features and interviews with Captain Sensible revealed, he was pretty much drunk for the entire period of the early 80s and was drunk mm. when he made the record. But, yeah, what I had in my head was, who is this eccentric chap? But he wasn't captivating particularly. I was much more captivated by the Dolly mixtures, I think, than Captain Sensible. Yes. Yeah, well, I would have watched this and my semiotic trousers would have rolled up and down with contempt. Primarily <laughs> because, obviously, I knew that I would have seen everything in the context of punk and pop entryism or whatever, and that was a project mm. that yeah. appeared to be reaching a zenith in 1982. And in the Human League had already cracked number one. But, you know, there were things, there was there were sort of would-be pop-like screams there was the associates, ABC, etc., etc., etc. Now that was the trajectory that was started with how the, you were supposed to go from punk to entryism to pop. Not this, you know. Mm. <laughs> it's cracked it. This, this is something else. There was the sort of the wing of punk that was in it for the kind of getting the pit, getting pissed, and having silly names like Captain Sensible because he's not sensible at all. He's a bit nutty, it no. turns out. Um, Nor is he a captain. No, no, he's not. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say this is the wing <laughs> commander. It's a bit sorry, isn't it? But there you go. Um, so yeah, um, I would have, I, I, yeah, I, I would have disliked this intensely, and I, I would have despaired at the, um, the you know, at the country that was like buying this in droves or whatever and silver mm. kind of, it was all you know musical errors like this were precisely equivalent to Thatcher keeping getting re-elected or whatever mm. um it really was you know, I mean when I first heard it and when I heard about it I was convinced at some point it was going to pull on my way with Sid Vicious mm. Mm. and you know start in a sort of serious way but then just go off on the song yeah and as i listened to it the first time and as it went on that the realization sunk in that he wasn't going to do that at yeah. all mm. and it was just like oh god is that it yeah yeah and of course now it comes off as a big in joke mm. played on the oldens who bought it in droves, exactly yeah but yeah, immediately yeah. took against it sid definitely didn't die for this i felt <laughs> no certainly not but no i think that's true i think it is just that basically it is a sort of parody of the kind of the shit one-off st winifred's type single basically yeah um, yeah. Delivered mm. with you know like you know a vast vast dose of um, sarcasm, but you know what is happening is nonetheless people are unironically going to record shops and paying unironic cash for it. Oh yeah, we're talking about the oldens. We're talking about there would have been people sitting in living rooms having this beamed at them who would have grown up in the Edwardian age, you know, and and, mm. and, um, and I think that this is genuine nostalgic feel good balm, you know, for a certain mm. Mm. existing yeah. dem- demographic as, as it was. And I mean, yeah, because you can't. Clearly, it was an enormous success, and something has to account for that. It's we'll meet again for the Falklands War, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, friends I'd make later, older friends, they'd say that when this came out, you know, they'd be dealing, if they were working in record shops, with, you know, little old ladies coming in, asking mm. for records by Captain Sensible, and having mm. to resist, you know, selling them Dan Dan Dan, for instance. Um, <laughs> it's odd, thinking of the fates of that class of 77, if you like. The Jammer in the top ten, the Clash of Break in America, yes. Stranglers kind of, in their way, also have an oddity kind of record with Golden Brown. They're all mm. finding mm. ways to do stuff away from the centre of pop, perhaps, while still having hits. But this, I mean, this is just, yeah, like David said, this is definitive novelty fare. It's not a... It's weird, because obviously it's number one, but it's not a big seller. Do you know what I mean? For, it's it's mm. one of those for-a-few-weeks smash midsummer novelty hit that attracts enough attention during a kind of weak sales period to slip up to the top position. You know, it only mm. noticeably spends eight weeks in the top 75 in total. So the joke 
obviously wears thin quite quickly for a lot of people. Happy mm-hmm. Talk. I looked at the charts for the top 50 best-selling singles of the year, and Happy Talk's not even in that top 50. Yeah, that's mental, Which, oddly enough, is a distinction it shares with Beat Surrender. Um, right. You know, you know, similarly big smash, but they don't stick around long, and they don't sell no. sell sell that big. Um, just needs noting, Dolly Mixture, um, their album that they sort of put together themselves and self released called Demonstration Tapes, mm. which Bob Stanley I think reissued. Bob Stanley's coming up a lot today, isn't he? Um, <laughs> yeah, he he reissued it on I think his Mint Royale label. It's actually well worth seeking out. That you know they had that that they were great, um, mm. but. Captain here is clearly as pissed as he was when he was recording it. There's a fantastic yes. interview by the wonderful Carol Clark um, in Melody Maker yeah. with Captain Sensible around about the time this was coming out. Uh, this very week. This very week, indeed. Where he says, you know, he backs up everything you said, obviously, Al, about the recording of it. I mean, he says, what can I do with this song? I couldn't play it because it had a key change and I can't play the black notes on the piano. Um, <laughs> so he says, all I did was go down a pub, get extremely drunk and wait for them to make the music. Yeah. And, he seems to have continued that drinking all the way through to this appearance because mm. this isn't just wacky zaniness. This is he looks trolled to be honest with you. It's not unpleasant yeah. to watch, no, but it, it's not dangerous or anything like that. But, um, yeah, no. it, it's a big fat fucking laugh. So that's how he's being portrayed in the music press. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's have a look at how he's being framed in the tabloids because there's an article in last week's Sunday Mirror called "This Star Is So Daft." He's sensible. Hmm. Call him a disgusting slob and he'll love you for it. But clear away the smelly socks and general disorder from his pad and he'll probably spit in your eye. This is Britain's number one hit loony, Captain Sensible. A name specifically chosen because that's what he's not. Throughout my interview with him, he was hell-bent on maintaining the image of the nauseating layabout. I have been known to be sick all over myself, he said, and generally behave in a revolting manner. So would money and newfound stardom change his bawdy habits? Nah, governor, (laughs) said the former toilet cleaner from Croydon, South London, who now does gigs in the nude. I won't change. I love living in squalor. And there's a photo of him naked playing the bass. Yeah. I bet he did not use the word governor. Thankfully not holding the bass to one side like Ashley out of imagination. <laughs> we, don't, we don't see any, uh, any of that nonsense. Mm. I mean, although it predates the TV show by nearly six months, to these jaded eyes of mine, Captain Sensible's coming off in the media as a one-man mashup of the young ones. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, He's yeah. got that tinge of violence like mm. Vivian. He's got a, a beret, uh, like Rick. Uh, he's a bit of a hipper, like Neil. Mm. And I couldn't think of anything to do with Mike, so let's ignore <laughs> that. You know, he's a, he's a lovable layabout yeah. who's a bit wacky. I think there is definitely an understanding, you know, that um, he has some sort of punk origin. You know, there's, an, there's a strong inkling. And I think even the old girls who were watching this would have a sense of that. Oh, he was one of them punks. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he kind of plays on that. There's that little bit at the beginning of this where he seems to kind of like be kind of like, yeah, to the, to the rabbit girls before sort of backing mm. off as if to say, nah, it's all right. I'm, we're all right, really. We're just, you know, we're, we're punks and all that, but we're cuddly, really. You know, have a cup of tea. Yeah. Mm. Like, the, uh, like the sex pistols yeah. in that Danny Boyle atrocity. Yes, exactly, that's about yeah. To yeah, oh yeah. God, and I can see again, you know, and I say, you, you know, you, 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 this, is, this is betrayal. You know, you've, you've deliberately de-radicalised yourself for the kind of top-of-the-pops mm. shilling 
you bastard. This is his third appearance on Top of the Pops. Um, what has he come as this week, chaps? It's sort of Wurzel Gummidge Pirate, isn't he? Yeah. Yes, Wurzel Gummidge Pirate. Mm. He's got, uh, he's got the, has he got the bird on his shoulders like yeah, he did yeah. in the previous does, ones? Yeah. yeah. And Dolly Mixture of Rabbits mm. uh, singing into giant carrots. There's daisies painted on the studio floor. There's tinsel and balloons everywhere. Mm. And as in the previous performances, there's a model seagull that's flapping its wings overhead. Looks really realistic. It looks like it's been <laughs> Stuff, <laughs> which is a bit grotesque. <laughs> but there's a deliberate shitness to it, isn't yeah. there? There's yes. a kind of deliberate naffness to it. And, and I think he is kind of cocking a snook uh, the sort of po-faced pomposity of certain aspects of new pop here. Yeah. There's a very telling quote in the interview with Carol Clark, the, the aforementioned interview, where he says, we all liked Happy Talk after we'd done it. I thought it was definitely better than the Human League. I don't like yeah. them. They stink of dog shit. So, nice. <laughs> yeah, very nice. You know, I think he is surprised that this becomes a hit. Oh, yes. And he's sort of surprised and delighted as our Dolly mixture. Mm. It shouldn't have been that surprising, though. I think if you're going to take this particular song, which I've got to say, as ever with chart music, I've been fucking humming this all bloody week because yeah. it's like an incredibly well-crafted song. Yes, it is. And it was a song yeah. that was known about. It was, Absolutely. you know, it was, it, was, it was on the national playlist for, yeah. for quite a while. Yeah. Roger, you know, Roger Hamstein first returned to the charts since You'll Never Walk Alone, actually. Really? And, and, yeah. I mean, it's their first number one since then. Um, a lot of people seem to think You Never Walk Alone is Joey and the Pacemaker song. Mm. Um, but it ain't it's, in, no. it's, from Car- it's from Carousel isn't it yes I think he's massively surprised consequently he's kind of taken the piss with all of his appearances but mm. there is a little bit of look we're going to use synths we're going to do this old cover um, we're not as po-faced as what else is going on in British pop music at the yeah. moment mm. and yeah return for Tony Mansfield new music we've raved about them not even covered them once on chart music yet but we're, we're dead keen on them mm. so good to see him back but what a shame it's on this. Yeah. I, th- I think that's the trouble, though. Not wanting to be po-faced is part of the British disease. Yes. Mm. Yes. I mean, he sings the song straight, which is a, a bit bad. But then, on the other hand, you know, imagine this in the hands of someone else. He doesn't lean into the pigeon Englishness of the original, which Ooh, no, no. Yeah. was a song written by two Jewish Americans sung by a black woman mm. and mimed to by a mixed-race woman pretending to be Polynesian. Mm. Imagine if he'd have punked up the vocals. That would have been truly awful. Oh, mm. fucking hell, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not to pick on the guy, but, you know, I imagine Jimmy Percy doing this and something oh, like that Oh, fucking hell. Do you know what I mean? Whereas at least he just keeps it flat. And consequently, mm. you know, for the old folk, and let's face it, it is going to be old folk buying this. Yes. Um, his punk roots are completely eliminated. He's more oh. of just the kind of wacky, zany Ken Dodd type figure. Definitely. Yes. Um, yes. You know, more than anything else. I tried to find out who the other major artist was who was thinking of covering this song. Oh, right. Couldn't find it anywhere, but I'd take a guess, uh, um, Anika. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's got form for this sort oh, of thing. Oh, yeah, it'll, it'll be part two of a racist trilogy, no doubt. But <laughs> <laughs> It's calibrated to appeal to everybody, apart from the people who usually watch Top of the Pops, yeah. i.e. people like me. Mm. Fucking hated it at the time. Mm. Doesn't get played enough for me to hate it now. So, no. you know, there is that. But the only fond memory I have of this song is that I've got a tape somewhere of my mum singing it to my sister mm. at the time. And when it gets to the golly baby, I'm a lucky cuss bit, my sister just says, did you say cunt? <laughs> and my mum corrects her without batting an eyelid and, and, and they carry on. 
Hmm. I mean, that was the thing. You just thought, well, there's got to be one time where he just sings, I'm a lucky cunt. Hmm. Even if it's unintentional, hmm. maybe this would be it, this uh, this performance, but no. He does draw hmm. it out a little bit, inviting Of course kind of he does, yeah, yeah, yeah. That story you told earlier on about the recording, it just reminded me of that, apropos of nothing, really. I, when I was about 15, and um, it was my Catholic school, and um, I had a school essay, and it was just meant to be sort of in the kind of vernacular of a northern man, you know, a sort of Hovisley type thing. Hmm. And, hmm. you know, and it was, he kept saying couldn't a lot. And quite innocently, you know, I kind of, you know, it says, you couldn't make it up. Yeah. You couldn't credit it. And I was writing C-U-N-T every time in this thing. And, just yeah. like, and it came back with these like, red rings, you know, my teacher handed about the exercise book, absolutely <laughs> glowered at me. And it was honestly, I was not being subversive. You couldn't make it up. You couldn't. The word cunt appears 12 times in this short essay. And uh, honestly, I, I really, really wasn't. I was, I was an innocent boy. But I, I also think, I mean, look, this is not a record about nuclear war. It's not a record about Falklands War or anything sort of socio-political, but in a sense, the enforced jollity of it it Mm. is in a way making, not not a political point as such, but I think that's potentially why it's sold so much. There's no subtext here. It, well, it, it's not. It's not ghost town, is it? No, no, it's not. It's not. <laughs> so the following week, Happy Talk dropped to number three, being usurped by Irene Cara. The follow-up, the Adamant diss track "What," got to number twenty-six in September, and his LP "Women and Captain First" only made it to number sixty-four in the same month. While the Dam's new LP "Strawberries" got to number fifteen. After putting his solo career on hold for two years, he left The Damned in 1984 and his next solo release, Glad It's All Over, got all the way to number six in April of that year. That's a fucking tune, that is. That's the great lost new music single. Don't remember Mm. that one at all. Oh, it's brilliant. Mm. But diminishing returns set in when his double A-side Christmas catalogue and relax, yes, that relax, only got to number 79 in December of 1984 and he was dropped from A&M. Sensible rejoined the Damned in 1996 and still tours with them today, while his record was eventually broken by Pixie Lot in 2009, when boys and girls jumped from number 73 to number one in September of that year, because it's the 21st century and the charts don't mean shit. Well, absolutely. (laughs) That record, yeah. that record just goes, and and before you know it, you're in a world where, yeah, you know, Lily Allen entered the charts last week at 168, now soars to number three without mm. battle oh. an eyelid. You know, this kind of yeah. stuff happens. Yeah. No, it's, not, that. it's not the same, is it? Fuck that. Yeah. But it's interesting to learn that your mates working at the record shop and fighting not to sell damned records mm. to non-ours, <laughs> because I always thought that was a bit of an urban legend. It mm. would have happened, and and the weird yeah. thing is, I mean, with what coming down the pipe a few a few months later, what was traditionally held up by all the old people that I knew as you know this is terrible not not offensive but kind of ridiculous that this can be a pop song mm. this kind of back mm. and forth chant so he's kind of you know Captain Sensible is kind of held up in about a few months time as evidence of just how empty and shit pop is um, yeah. but these were all the fuckers who were buying Happy Talk oh man the oldens turned the back on Captain Sensible <laughs> they did mm. they went off and bought a spread a little happiness yeah. <laughs> and went to see the film that it was in <laughs> fickle old bitches <laughs> yes <laughs>
Well then, still at number one. Next week's Top of the Pops will be introduced by Peter Powell. And this week, we're going to leave you with the music of the Steve Miller Band. And uh, moving to it are some magicians from the Human Circus. I think you're going to like Kid, back amongst the throng of zoo wankers, warns us that Peter Powell's coming on next week and signs off with Abracadabra by the Steve Miller Band. Born in Milwaukee in 1943, Steve Miller was the son of a jazz-crazed mum and dad and the godson of Les Paul. When he was seven years old, the family relocated to Dallas and offered up their back room as a demo studio to the likes of T-Bone Walker, Charles Mingus and Tal Farlow. And the young Steve was encouraged to have a bang on the guitar by Godfather Les. In the mid-50s, he started his first band, The Marksman, which consisted of him, his brother and his best mate at school, Boz Skaggs. And when he started attending the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1961, he started up Steve Miller and the Ardells with Skaggs in tow. They were put on hiatus when Miller went to the University of Copenhagen for his final semester, but he packed it in with only six hours of study left to be completed and decided to take his band to Chicago and get immersed in the blue scene of the time. After running into and jamming with Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf and Buddy Guy, he linked up with Barry Goldberg, a keyboard player who was in the Paul Butterfield Blues Band and was a part of Bob Dylan's backing band during his electric performance at the Newport Folk Festival and they formed the Goldberg Miller Blues Band and moved to New York but didn't get on with it and he ended up in San Francisco where he formed the Steve Miller Blues Band in 1960. After they backed Chuck Berry on the 1967 LP Live at Fillmore Auditorium, they were signed to Capitol, knocked the blues off their name on the recommendation of George Martin, and ended up on the bill of the Monterey Festival in June of that year. It would take five years and eight albums for the Steve Miller Band to get properly sorted out in America when the Joker got to number one on the Billboard chart in January of 1974. And it would take another two years after that for their first dent on the UK chart when Rockin' Me, his second US number one, got to number 11 in November of 1976, their only British hit thus far. Earlier this year, when their 12th LP, also called Abracadabra, was being prepared for release, Miller pushed for this to be released as the lead-off single in America, but Capitol Records didn't reckon it at all. However, Phonogram, their European label, were all for it, and it got to number one in Austria, Portugal, Spain, Sweden and Switzerland. And even the Brits went for it when it came out last month, when it entered the chart at number 38, then soared 26 places to number 2. After an airing of a very expensive-looking video on top of the pops, it jumped 8 places to number 4, and this week it's up 2 places to number 2. 
Now, normally, chaps, that would warrant a pan of the kids and the zoo wankers in the studio or mm-hmm. a fisheye view of the studio lights, but hey, it's 1982. Mm. So Michael Hurl has riffled through the classified section of the stage and booked in some magicians to do their pieces in between clips of the video. <laughs> I mean, he rolled the dice mm. with Trio and came up with whatever's good in craps, mm. which I've never understood. But in, in this case, he's, he's tried to repeat that trick and this time, the dice have gone right off the table and under the settee have <laughs> been hoovered up by his mum and lost forever Indeed. I, I yeah. contend Indeed. I, 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 I concur you contend and I concur definitely yeah. the magician's not Ooh. really that magic is he um, hmm. well there's three of them well the one who looks hmm. like a kind of mustachioed Fraser Crane um, yes. he's bloody awful definite animal cruelty issues going on with what he's doing he starts pulling hmm. a variety of species out of a box, and I'm fairly mm. sure a couple of those creatures are dead. They don't seem mm. to be moving mm. much. And then he closes his stuff by pulling a deeply unimpressive amount of handkerchiefs out of a cocktail yes. shaker. A cocktail shaker mm. that looks perfectly adequately sized to contain that many handkerchiefs. It would be, it would be more magical for me to pull tissues out of a man-sized Kleenex box. It's not mm. really yeah. magic. Mm. Well, no, that's more difficult. You know, the first, the first few, you usually get a right fucking watch, don't you? That's true. Yeah. That's yeah. true. I mean, there's, yeah. three, there's one in a dinner jacket who looks just like a zoo wanker, mm. who was actually mm. standing right next to Kid Jensen and kind of like walks off when the song begins and starts dancing yeah. before he starts mm. doing his pieces. There's that bloke, the animal cruelty bloke with mm. a receding hairline, but there's someone else with an absolute fucking Uber Keegan of a perm oh, God, yeah. who does ball tricks. Mm. Amazing mm. hair. He looked like, he mm. reminded me of Jim McLaren from Porridge, actually, a little bit, that guy. Um, mm. But um, he's, he, what's he doing? Kazoo in his yeah. mouth, bouncing a football on it? This is not mm. magic. No. No. Also with magic, magic requires undivided attention. Yeah, well, exactly. Very good, didn't it? You'd have bloody Steve Miller's sort of, you know, harping on in the background. It's, mm. yeah, it's not an ambient thing. <laughs> well, magicians kind of do suit top of the pops in this era because magicians are all about look at me look at me look at me but they're also about distraction mm. so you've got loads of zoo wankers doing the look at me bit and then you've got them and you've got the video and you've got the music and you've got the neon and you've mm. got the balloons and you've got the flags and you just can't focus on anything <laughs> it's a bit of a headache isn't it and, mm. and it is. but you do need distraction from what zoo are doing most definitely of course there's an mm. appalling bit where city farm they all join hands and they oh. start jumping up and down steps it's horrible. Yeah, it's horrific. I think near the end, you know, there's a really horrible bit. It's sort of like really blokey and space entitled. You know, all those sort of chaps get together. The sort of people who barge their way onto the centre of the dance floor at the yes. Bally High nightclub or something. Yeah, yes. You know, there's there's no grace about it. I mean, Pan's people. There was always grace, wasn't there? there was yes. A certain, you know, not necessarily gracefulness. They could be, but there was grace in terms of their presence. They didn't there feel was invasive. Dignity. These feel, yeah, exactly. These these people just feel invasive and horrible. Mm. But truth be told, couldn't they have shown the video? Couldn't they just show yeah, the video? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, but they've already shown the video. They don't like showing the same video twice. Yeah, but it's a well expensive... Even though it's 1982, how many times have you seen it? Well, this is it. You know, there's no MTV. You, you might not have... You probably haven't got a video recorder. You know, you're not going to see it on Breakfast Time or TV AM because they don't exist yet. There's no Channel 4. Mm. Just show the video. The song mm. for me, because I'm a kid, I'm an idiot at this time. I mean, look, I love this song. It's well catchy. And it was intimately mm. associated with the video for me. I was 
was annoyed in a, in a sense that it kept cutting to the video and then just depriving us of it and showing us yes. city farm wankers again. Um, yeah, cause which we've seen. Well, we've seen them. We've seen them plenty of times. We don't need to see them anymore. It is. I mean, I cannot believe that Capital didn't think this was a single. It's mental, isn't it? It's mental. It's blatantly the single off any album that it would appear on. It's catchy yeah. as fuck. Very, yes. very simple song. But yeah. um, it's simple, catchy, and it has... I'm not saying it's avant-garde or anything, but the guitar solo is kind of mad and kind of wacky mm. and full of sound effects. It's, it's got a mm, similar yeah. sort of appeal to the reflex later on by Duran. It's kind of gimmicky, but yeah, yeah absolutely. It's like it, being trapped in Defender, isn't it? It is. Guitar solo. It is, but immensely ear-catching for a kid. So let's talk about the single. I mean, I've got a very sweet tooth for Steve Miliband. From yeah. Fly Like an Eagle and Rocky Mare. I've been playing them recently. It's like, fucking hell, these are good. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not supposed to like these, but... Fuck it, I do. Yeah, I, I, I would have just hated it. I had a very salty tooth for them, really. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just slick, white, orthodox. But I will grant you that it is absolutely um, very, very memorable indeed. I mean, mm. so from that point mm. of view, I mean, it certainly does a job. Um, horrible lyrics. Very sort of Donald Trump, isn't it? Grab, you know, grab him by the pussy. Yeah. Um, well, let me stop you there, David, because it's actually the woman in the song that sings that. Because the lyric goes, just when I think I'm going to get away, I hear the words that you always say. Oh. So she's the grabber. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, that's all right because of feminism, etc. Well, I don't, I don't know. I think it's, it's still very risky, really, because, um, you know, he's saying it. And it you know, if he sort of said, mm. I want to greet you, you know, and conveyed a, a distinctly feminine voice, <laughs> then he would have been in the clear, absolutely. <laughs> I want to yeah. greet you, and grab you. You see, that's obviously a woman. Yeah. yeah obviously. Yeah. So a fine line between sexy and sexist, doesn't it? It is, it, it? it is. And the thing is, you know, it's, it's like who's listening to the lyrics? All you're listening, it's a bit like the Bruce Springsteen thing. Born in the USA, didn't you listen yeah. to the verse? No, of course not. You know, you listen to the key line. So all I ever <laughs> no. heard for years and years was a bloke singing, I want to reach yeah. out and grab you. I mean, maybe Donald Trump could have used that defense. <laughs> in any case, you know, Steve Miller's clearly in a consensual relationship mm. involving magic. So, okay. you know, if he wants to reach out and grab his partner, as long as he's mm. not too grotesque and she doesn't mind and he's he's not just doing it to show off to his mates i think that's fair dues well okay fair enough you're a bit you're a bit more liberal in nottingham <laughs> al why did you have to say consensual relationship involving magic and i've now got you obviously mcgee and daniels in my mind <laughs> and their uh, scat dungeon no <laughs> i i think it's a bit doubtful for years i think it, it, it was a stigma i think you know it affected me it probably affected my attitudes to women for many years you know who's just to say i mean you know no. in your formative years when you hear these things you know the sort of things that's <laughs> oh, accessible my, my case comes up on thursday <laughs> uh, in any case what what else rhymes with abracadabra i mean come on well I know. I mean, it's it's tough, isn't it? I mean, obviously, he's done it because he was thinking of something that rhymes with abracadabra. I suppose it would be like, hey there, yeah. hey there, hey presto, I really want to molest you. <laughs> <laughs> Just as bad, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah pretty much. Or he, could, or he could have sang, I want to take you to Tesco. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, I suppose. So. I can scoff at you, David, for being lyrically wrong about abracadabra, but yeah. my head is bowed at the moment because um, talking of lyrics that you didn't get, I've come up with a absolute oh what wow moment. Oh, really? I've had it in my head until today mm-hmm. yeah. that the lyric in this song goes silk and satin, leather and lace. 
Black Betty with an angel's face. Right. <laughs> right, which is a callback to the Ram Jam classic mm, of 1977. Of but I've only just realised what it actually is. Do you know what it is? Go on, then. Black panties with an angel's mm. face. Mm. And that changes everything for me. Hmm. <laughs> Because not only a, a pair of drawers with an angel's face on it would be all kinds of fucking wrong, mm. particularly if it was a biblically accurate angel, mm. as Taylor's pointed out. <laughs> but now, I mean, all I've thought about all day is Frank Spencer going, ooh, panties. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Mm. I never heard the Black Betty thing, but now, of course, I'm thinking about Betty Driver. Yes. <laughs> not in a pair of knickers with a biblically accurate angel on it, no, though, eh? No. I'm going to mm. stop now, actually. <laughs> but, yeah, Neil, leather and lace. Leather ampersand lace. He's, he's brought that into the uh, yeah. into the dictionary how astounding! How astoundingly prophetic of him. And I'm sure mm. he didn't know the uh, the uh, legion of shit rock compilations it would, um, it, that would ensue. But there it is. <laughs> David's thoughts are actually very much reminding me of uh, Miles Davis's quote about Steve Miller, which I love. Um, right. In his autobiography, Miles Davis says, I remember one time, I, it might have been a couple of times, at the Fillmore East in 1970, I was opening for this sorry-ass cat named Steve Miller. <laughs> Steve Miller didn't have his shit going for him, so I'm pissed because I got to open for this non-playing motherfucker just because he had one or two sorry-ass records. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to imagine that in Miles Davis's voice. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I just hate the fact that he's called the Steve Miller Band or whatever, you know, like, mm. no frills, does what he says on the tin. and all that. Oh, <laughs> Give yourself a name, ACDC, whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a slick white orthodox, as I say. But it, um, and I think what, what really would have bothered me, I mean, you, you made a list earlier on of all the things that are imminent, Al, you know, like um, video and Channel 4. This is the very, very last, the last knockings of the era in which pop time is really, really precious. And this, yes. re- this would have pissed me off because it was really eating into my very precious pop time. What are you moaning about, David? You're watching fucking Your Heroes, West Germany. Oh, well, I mean, about this On point. ITV yeah. now. Well, yeah. So, sure. Well, true, true, <laughs> well to true, be true. honest, now, we all would have been by now, I would have mm. thought, yeah. I would have flicked back about three or four minutes in and gone, oh, it's that. It's yeah. abracadabra. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. flick back. Mm. You know, because I'd be hoping it was just who is the five o'clock hero by the jam. Mm. who suddenly just made an appearance on top of the pops out of nowhere. I was terrified I was going to miss something like that. So mm. I'd have flicked back and then gone, oh, and flicked back over again. But I suppose with things like this, precisely because they're actually well-crafted in a way, they don't just occupy precious minutes of Top of the Pops. They sit in your brain. Mm, you know, they, yeah. they're, they're earworms or whatever. So they have that kind of add-on yeah. insidious effect. And this was one of the big anthems of the summer of 1982. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I don't know. Life is just very, very different these days. I mean, my and I carried this through right into being a music journalist. And for me, it justified, you know, the kind of absolute roastings I would give out to music that I disliked. Because, you know, a song like Baby Jane by Rod Stewart, which I think is the worst song, mm. worst pop song ever made, <laughs> <laughs> and I just deeply resent the fact that I heard that 80, 90 times and yes. I could play it now in my head. Yeah. I deeply yeah. resent that, the way that people resented U2 putting their album out on everybody's um, you know, mobile phones and all that shit. But now, I don't get bothered in the same way with this anymore. I'm, I think like most people can just live in a bubble, really. There's rubbish music out mm. there, but it doesn't detain me for one single second. I don't no. have an opinion on Adele because I don't, I've never knowingly listened to an Adele record. You know, mm. so not no. eating up space in my head or sort of taking up you know, like precious time. The only thing Adele takes up is that um, rack in Tesco's where the toughies used to be. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Video's expensive, though, isn't it? I like mm. that spinning ball. Mm. I still can't work out how they do that. Yeah. And they've got animals in it, but it's a, a white rat uh, being treated nice by a slinky woman who uh, who is Joan Severance, who was a really? model at the time. Oh, yes. Right. She later became Hulk Hogan's love interest yep. in the film No Holds Barred. So there you go. That's my second Hulkster reference. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to say about this? No. I'm saving my abracadabra story. Which could, you could say it would be appetite here. I'm saving it for Halloween. Um, there was what? A ge- oh no, there was a moment in my life where I heard the word abracadabra in a truly terrifying scenario. Um, oh no, come on, you can't leave it. Oh, like I that, was Neil. just lying on my bed in my flat in York, right where I right. studied. And um, this flat had a bit of a history to it. Um, We were students and we wanted to move in in June, as I recall, for our final year at uni. And we Mm. were told by our landlord, no, sorry, you can't. Um, They found a body under the floorboards. Um, And they found, yeah, they'd found a skeleton. Now, York's obviously an ancient city. It could have been ancient. But um, Mm. we didn't tell one of our roommates and luckily he got that room. But um, (laughs) that that room was full, that whole house was full of spooky shit. The the one thing I really distinctly recall, and I honestly, I wasn't doing drugs or anything. I was lying on my bed, (laughs) listening to something. And I don't know, the record had finished, the needle lifted. And deep in my ear, well, right in my ear this um, demonic voice, genuinely demonic, said abracadabra in my ear and it scared the living fucking shit out of me. <laughs> um, now, you could say... Did it reach out and grab you? No, it didn't. <laughs> fuck, but my God, that was scary. Um, I, oh. I, I, granted, I, I'm a, I was a suggestible child and teenager and young <laughs> adult, but <laughs> I'll never forget that. That was terrifying. I mean, I can listen to abracadabra by Steve Miller, no problem. It, it doesn't raise traumatic memories. But, um, yeah... Oh, what about if that. he crept up behind you and whispered it in your oh, ear? Then? No, don't, Al. That shit me up. Don't, mm. don't even fucking <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> so the following week, Abracadabra. I don't even want to say it now, Neil. Oh, it's creepy. It was- the following week, that song stayed at number two for one more week before entering a large box, having swords thrust into it and disappearing out of the charts. <laughs> However, its success over here and throughout Europe forced the hand of Capitol Records, who put it out in that their Yankee land where they make all the films. And it got to number one for two non-consecutive weeks in September. Fucking hell, man. We're even ahead of the game on America's own fucking singles, man. Mm. Useless bastards. <laughs> Backwater. <laughs> the follow-up keeps me wondering why only got to number 58 in September, and that was their lot over here for the rest of the decade. But in 1990, Levi's ran an advert where someone who looked like Madonna's latest boyfriend rode a motorbike into a stock exchange office and lobbed his girlfriend some jeans to put on to the sound of the Joker, their 1973 single, and it spent two weeks at number one in September of that year. It is unfathomable to me why this record company thought this wouldn't go down well in America. I know. Is it, is, do you reckon it's because Steve Miller in America has got a bit more of a catch it and kind of people like know who he was mm. and therefore the contrast with him doing this quite new wavy kind of record oh, yeah. um, might have unsettled them a bit. I don't know, but it's yeah. mad because it's an insanely catchy song. Yeah. It's a big, dumb, catchy song for a big, dumb, catchy country. You know, I don't see what the problem is. <laughs> I, th- I think they worry that the, the likes of Johnny Fever wouldn't play it because it's too disco. Uh, of course. Maybe, yeah. Mm. Maybe, maybe, yeah. 
But you see, I would have refused to have danced to this on principle. <laughs> um, you know, I was very, very distributed. There were certain things you did. It didn't matter what, you know, if it was something kind of romantic, Bruin on the dance floor. If this came on, I would absolutely, as a matter of principle, whatever the situation, storm off in high dudgeon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you only dance to funk. Um, it could be white funk, but you do not dance to... I was very strict. I wouldn't even dance to Motown. I just thought, or if I what? did, I'd do it in a pointedly sarcastic Why? way. Like, yeah, yeah, you want to sort of bust some contemporary moves, you know, with some nuanced rhythms and what yeah. have you. That's how I felt about it. I was very, very strict about this sort of thing. Dancing like fucking Andy McCluskey, eh, David? <laughs> <laughs> and that, dear boys and girls, is the end of this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One whip us straight into the fourth episode of Fame, where Coco's band do a benefit show, but Bruno develops stage fright, but everything turns all right in the end because it's fucking fame. (laughs) After the news, it's episode six of the drama series Oppenheimer, where the inventor of the atomic bomb starts getting mithered by Joe McCarthy. After that, it's the concert series, Night Music, and this week, it's a chance to see Sky in concert. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Then we go back to David Coleman for highlights of the World Cup semi-finals in World Cup Report, then the weather, then close down at a quarter past midnight. BBC Two eventually ensures that my dad doesn't stop me from watching the end of the football by putting on summer festivals, where Paul Gambaccini and Fran Morrison take us to the chittest of festivities to see someone play the piano in a cathedral. Then it's news night, highlights from today's cricket, and they shut down at five past midnight. ITV are 10 minutes into the West Germany-France game with no goals as yet and unaware that they're about to screen the first ever penalty shootout in a World Cup which fucks the rest of the schedule right up. So they presumably follow up with news at fucking ages after 10 (laughs) followed by regional news in your area then TVI nips over to Toxteth to find out if any lessons have been learned after last year's riots then it's Hill Street Blues what the papers say and they close down at God knows when So boys what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow morning? Imagination um, mm. of course Shalimar for sure um, yes. although probably you know with equal ability to haven't seen it the first time oddly enough you know I genuinely did go out and buy um, Shy Boy by Banana Rama right? right. I, I got a very soft spot for it. I didn't like much Banana Rama before then or subsequently but that, that one kind of you know it got me mm. I say. is that because you were a Shy Boy David underneath could those be. trousers could, could, could be oh yes yes could well be yeah that's mm. probably it yeah <laughs> I think we'd have been talking about, yeah, Jeffrey Daniel, without a yes. doubt, I think it'd be top of, top of the discussion. Probably about how sick we were getting of that Captain Sensible tune. Yeah. Um, my mates would definitely have been talking about ACDC. Mm. Um, and I think Imagination were always talked about whenever yeah. that appeared. Um, so, yeah, that's what we'd be chatting about. Mm. What are we buying on Saturday? So, as a kid, I'd have been getting hmm, Imagination Trio. Mm. And possibly that's about it. As an adult, Odyssey, yeah. Shalimar, yeah. Um, DC, um, in fact, quite a lot of them. Yeah, what a strike rate in this episode. Mm. There is, definitely. And Sorry, another thing I would have been talking about, probably, in fact, inevitably, would have been which member of Banana Armour I fancied mm. um, the most, which was probably Karen. I would have bought, uh, I actually did buy Odyssey, 
course. And I did yeah. buy, as I said, um, uh, but the Banana Rama. It was the only Banana Rama record I ever bought. Mm. And I think that's about it. I would have probably not bothered this time with um, Imagination. Um, I already got it, really. And of course, I would have already got um, Don't You Want Me. Mm. And I should sort of not been quite so much up my own ass and actually invested in ACDC. He might have made a man of me. No. Um, but I didn't. And I was just disappointed. I had high hopes for a trio and da-da-da, and I felt they were dashed, really. So, uh, yeah. But, hey, we got a decent chocolate bar out of them, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> trio doing the advert music for hmm? Trio would have been fucking amazing. <laughs> With that girl. <laughs> and Derek Griffiths, fucking hell. They could have done a whole album of that, man. They could have done, they yes. could have done the United one as well. You know, yes. my name is Stan, I am a fan, all of that. Mm. I am the boss, and sometimes I get cross. <laughs> and what does this episode tell us about July of 1982? Well, you know what? It was a lot more interesting than I might have thought, I think. Yes. You know, I think Pop's getting more colourful in a way. Than the, than the kind of glowering early 80s years. Things at the moment, when this episode comes out, they could have gone kind of one or two ways. We could have ended up with more perversity and oddness, if you like, a la trio, or we could mm. have gone more competence and slick professionalism, as in all the shit that Jonathan King throws at us. Yeah. Unfortunately, Jonathan King's world wins. Um, as I think mm, yeah. 83 and 84 prove. But things are still sort of nicely up for grabs in this period in a way that I wasn't expecting. I think this tells us that 1982 has got to be taken really seriously as one of the great oh, years totally. of music. Yeah, definitely. I think we have to extend that golden age out mm. from 1979 right past 1981 and into at least the middle of 1982. Mm. I think the problem with 1982 is like 1980. It's a year stuffed with brilliant music, but the number ones are shit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because the oldens and the norals and the kids are still having their say. The toddlers. Mm. Uh, what a high water mark of humanity July of 1982 is. This kind of quality on top of the pops and a decent World Cup. Fuck yeah. hell. Take me back there, please. Great, yeah. Yeah, great, great times. And I, I would agree. I think I'd ultimately probably plump for 82 as the greatest pop year. Um, you know, right. Simon makes a strong case for 81, you know, and I think it is a strong case. I thought it was a great year too. Um, and then mm. 83, the descent begins. I mean, it's Howard Jones, Nick Kershaw, who are just kind of peroxided chancers, basically, who mm. don't have this kind of punk trajectory. Yeah. And actually the Smiths, although I loved them at the time, they, they're the kind of, you know, the first white group in ages, you know, coming from that sort of Mancunian background who are clearly, who, who without funk, who have no relationship, indeed have a disdain for black music, well, Morrissey certainly. Um, and I mm. think that in itself, you know, although, the, you know, the, the Smiths, early Smiths records are very great, they represent a kind of re-Caucasian-fying, as it were, of rock and pop music. And, you know, they're the first group to break off that relationship with great black music that you had since punk. Yeah, and in 82, kids are, are still into music, if you like, that is... And, and when I say kids, I mean not little kids, yeah? Like you said out uh, a few minutes ago, you know, little kids and oldens. Um, I, th- I mean, teenagers are into music that their parents can't fathom out and that their parents think this isn't proper yes. music. Whereas in 83, yes. those kids are into things like, like David said, Howard Jones. You know, Howard Jones is never going to rub an older person up the wrong way with his mm. feather cut and his no. basically sort of synthy prog type music. Whereas in 82, there is still mm. that thing of, mm. I mean, I remember my parents saying to me, this is barely music. That's what you want to hear as a kid. 
You really want to hear yeah. that. You know, that no, is what you want to hear. Whereas in 83, I don't yeah. think that's happening as much. So, yeah, yeah an underrated year, 82, as this, as this episode proves, really. Whereas I was always saying to my daughter, Alicia, you know, this isn't noise, it's just music. <laughs> <laughs> and so we come to the end of another episode of Chart Music. Oh, all that remains for me to do is the usual promotional flange. So, www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at chartmusictotp, money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you, Neil Kulkana. As ever a pleasure. God bless you, David Stubbs. A pleasure indeed. My name's Al Needham, and golly baby, I'm a lucky cunt. (laughs) Chart music. yourself and not someone else. Do Calvin Klein, Bill Blass, or Gloria Vanderbilt wear clothes with your name on it? No, of course not. So you table the label and wear your own name. All dressed up with no place to go. No sweat, says Kelly. I'll just run around the block a few times. And she probably won't be running alone in this versatile outfit. Perfect for stopping traffic and starting. Who knows what? Manny. All the brakes been going well for Manny. He's wearing the B-boy look. B for breaking, and boy, do that look tough. David. Who's the hippest cat in town? Ain't no doubt when David. around with semiotic trousers and hair and fitness. He's the 80s nod to fitness splendor. Stay cool, David.
Fucking gone. 